New Testament reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. I'm going to let that happen, (laughs) if that's okay. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I'm sorry. The word of the Lord. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Uh, thank you, Aaron. And thanks for being yourself, Aaron. Um, let me pray. Father, we, we show up this morning to worship you with all sorts of things on our minds, um, all sorts of, of burdens that, that we're bearing, whether they're our own or we're, whether we're trying to um, help bear the burdens of others around us. And Father, we confess this morning as we come to your word that we are are grappling for and we are looking for hope, and often we have looked for it in the wrong place, and so we pray that you would point us again uh, to the living hope that is found through the resurrection of Jesus that we have been united with, Father, that um, it wouldn't be some abstract, ethereal sort of concept for us, um, but this morning that it really would be a deep... um, knowledge and experience that we know that we are now united with Christ, Father, that might bring us hope even in the midst of all the things um, that we experience in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, um, as we started this letter, you remember that we talked about the fact that Peter is writing to these, he's writing to baby Christians. They're brand new Christians, and he talks about where they live, that they're scattered um, all throughout the Roman Empire. And because of that, their lives have dramatically changed. That 
they have, some of them probably have been abandoned by their families as a result, that they are now following a crucified, um, risen Messiah who was a carpenter from Nazareth. Um, This would have been a, a fairly obscure thing for them to do. And it caused some difficulties in their life, maybe with their own families, maybe with their own friends. Um, Certainly, it's going to cause some difficulties with the culture in which they live and the government that they're under. That we know that persecution was already happening when Peter wrote this letter, um, but that Nero was actually rising to power during this time as well. If you haven't read some of the persecution that the church went through under Nero... Um, It is grim reading. And so he's writing to Christians that are in many ways confused and grieved and heavy-hearted and afraid. Are those emotions that that you've ever felt before? (laughs) To be grieved, to be heavy-hearted, to be confused... Um, To be afraid, Um, if you aren't feeling those things right now, I bet you can remember times where you felt those in the not-too-distant past, and I can guarantee there are going to be times in your life you are going to feel those very things in the not-too-distant future. Because what is common to all of us in in a broken, fallen, sinful world is we experience heavy-heartedness, and we experience trials, and we experience suffering, and we experience grief, that none of us are immune to those things. And what's common to all the human condition, whether or not, whatever we believe in, is that we spend a lot of time trying to avoid those things. We spend a lot of our energy looking for ways that we might not experience those things. It's just common, right? But is it possible? Can we actually do that? In the middle of the last um, century, the last century um, was kind of rough, right? I mean, as centuries go, they probably all are. But the last century, um, we experienced a lot of devastation and we experienced a lot of Um, evil. And we experienced, you know, just to name a few things, there were two world wars in the last century. Uh, There was a holocaust. Uh, There was the development of of nuclear warfare. Um, There was a lot of bad things going on, right? And in the midst of that, um, you had a French philosopher And what do philosophers do? Philosophers try to answer questions of what is the meaning of life or why are we here? Um, What is the point? And you had a French existentialist philosopher named Albert Camus who opened one of his books with this line uh, that became famous in the myth of Sisyphus. He said, the only, with all of this going on around them, as he looks at the world, as he looks at the devastation, as he looks at the inhumanity, he says the only true philosophical question is suicide. He was a really fun guy, right? Um, but he, he was honest. Because as he looked at everything around him, as he looked at the devastation, he said the only true, what he was saying is, is the only true question is that, you know, since there's no reason to him at least um, to hope in anything, there's no reason to hope that anything is going to change, there's no hope that you can control anything, and so the only real question is do you want to bear it 
and put up with it, or do you want to opt out? Not too many years later, in our own country, what we saw um, is, is a massive shift in culture. And not to be too, uh, not to put too, you know, clean a little bow on it, but I mean, I think that massive shift in culture was a way um, that people were dealing with grief and devastation. And many of them began to listen to voices like Timothy Leary. And Timothy Leary said, and famously, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. What he was saying is that look around, take it in, tune into it, and then drop out. And what he meant was um, you don't have to drop out of life, but you don't have to you don't have to stay in mainstream society because mainstream society is sort of the root of all this evil. And so you can play by your own rules, and so drop out, do what makes you happy, play by your own rules. I watched a I watched a documentary recently. Um, on the Grateful Dead, the band, and um, it's what I do in my spare time. Um, and it, it was sort of chronicling a whole culture and a whole um, part of society that was basically following that logic to turn on, to tune in, and then to drop out, to play um, by my own rules. Why? Because I don't really have any hope. And, you know, some decent music came out of it, but for the lives of many of the people involved, they just didn't turn out very well. They didn't look very happy in the end. And sadly, as we kind of trace that century, we look at the reaction of the church as all of these things are going on. And sadly, the reaction of the church has often been not to listen to culture, not to listen to voices that are looking for hope and looking for desperation, but often what we saw maybe in the last 40 years in the church was the church um, withdrew and then the church sort of armed itself and created what we called culture wars. That it began not to, to listen to the culture, not to listen to the voices that were looking for hope, but instead to begin to Um, wall themselves off and sort of lob bombs over that wall. And we talked about last week that the church began to align itself with with wherever they could see power, they began to align themselves with power. And so they would hitch their wagon to political power. They would hitch their wagon to things that they thought would bring the church relevance and bring the church importance. And what about us now? What about now? What about these questions in, in your own life? Like, just the simple question of why are you here? Why are you living? Why are you in this world? Why is the, why is the church, we're going to answer all these today, why is the church in the world? This is one of the things that, that Peter is wanting us to, to wrestle with, and he's wanting um, his, these people that he's writing to to begin to think about, do we think about that? Or are we simply living our lives, confessing our faith over here? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a part of the church. But most of my thought, my time, and my energy is mainly spent trying to avoid grief and pain, and hardship, and suffering, and trial, and anybody being opposed to me, and anything that looks remotely like persecution. And my question in the midst of that is then where are we finding our hope? Because for, I think for a lot of us, um, 
you know, syncretism in our own culture looks like us simply adopting what the rest of our society is doing in the sense of this is one of the busiest cultures that has ever existed. And when, when people look back and study this time, I mean, they're going to study the fact that when people were asked how they were doing, one of the top three answers was, I'm just so busy. What are we so busy with? We might be busy trying to avoid feeling anything. I think that much of our society, much of our culture is really busy and stays so busy because if you stop for one minute, then you might begin to actually look around and see the pain and the hurt in this world. And we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to think about that. Or maybe our busyness is an attempt to, maybe not to feel so much as to create a feeling, as to create hope. Maybe if I work hard enough, if I slave away enough, then I can insulate myself from anything that is difficult and anything that is hard. Maybe I can create my own little kingdom and my own little world um, where the things that I see out there I don't want to experience, and so I can create this if I just work hard enough. Nobody would say that out loud, but many of us live that way. I read a book this week um, with a funny title. It was just called How to Have a Good Day. How to Have a Good Day. And it's, it, it actually is a really good little book, but the woman who wrote it, she has studied kind of the latest neuroscience and, and behavioral science, and she's looked at these things and started to apply them to the workplace. And I was just wanting to read a book on, like, you know, how do, how do I make my day flow a little better? And she's saying most of us end our days, and we say, you know, was it a good day or was it a bad day? And she's saying, this is how you have a good day. And there was a lot of great tips in there for how to function more fluidly, but at the, as I read it, I kept coming back to this thought. If I execute these things, and if I do them well enough, and I do them often enough, will it mean my day is good? And then how many good days do I have to have in order to have a good life? How many hundreds of days, good days, do I have to have in order to have a good life? And I couldn't shake the feeling that something was missing. Well, this, because the question in my mind as I was reading that book and also thinking about Peter and thinking about the New Testament and thinking about these early Christians is, will this give me hope? Well, for Peter, who's writing this letter, his life was drastically and dramatically turned upside down and changed by the resurrection of Jesus. Everything changed at that moment. Everything, as we looked at at the end of John, changed as he met the risen Lord, as he was forgiven by the risen Lord, and then he goes out into the world to begin proclaim the good news of Jesus. Everything in his life changed, and not everything changed according to the be- like for the better according to our standards, right? So Peter's a really good person to be writing this letter because he's writing to these Christians who are, who are new in faith, who might be thinking, well, this means I'll get my best life right now, right? This means everything's going to get better. And he knows that they're getting ready to experience hardship and trials and suffering and persecution. And what he says to them in the midst of that is that they now have a reason to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
You may have read that a hundred times before. I don't know how many times you've heard that first chapter of Peter, but think about these words again, that Peter is writing to them not when everything is going really well, not when everything is going really good. He writes to them and says, you now have a reason to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So let me ask you this. What brings you joy? What brings you joy? Because if you follow the logic in this first chapter, what Peter is saying is that joy is always linked to hope. He starts with hope in these first few verses. He gets to the point where he says, you now have a reason to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And what he's saying is that joy always follows hope. So when you think that you found hope, it usually results in some type of joy. So what brings you joy? And then let me ask you this question. Is your hope hopeful enough to sustain your joy in the midst of difficulty? Is your hope hopeful enough to sustain your joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of your life looking different than you thought it would? Tanner alluded to it a minute ago, but we use the word hope in a way that Peter is not using that word. We think about hope as, as he said, anticipation. We think about hope as, I would say, as something that is wishful. You know, that we kind of go, um, I hope that it won't rain for two weeks straight anymore. And we don't know. It's just sort of a wish that I, I hope that this will happen. I hope that the Cavs beat the Warriors at least one time in the series. Not a lot of basketball fans in the room. Um, I, you know, I hope that I have like a decent enough job that I can make a living um, so that my life is, is, is just at least normal. I hope. I wish. I anticipate. But Peter is doing something different. Peter is reminding his readers of what he is saying is living hope, which is true hope, which is resurrection hope, and it is far different than anticipation, and it is far different from wishful thinking. It is rooted and grounded in an act in history, and that act in history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It flows, our hope flows from an event that was the inauguration of the reversal of all the breaking of our culture and our world. Our hope flows from the, inaugura- the event that was the inauguration of the undoing of sin's effects on everything. That's where our hope flows from. There's a pastor in, in Los Angeles named Rankin Wilburn, and he describes Christian hope this way. And I'm going to read his definition to you. And um, if some of this sounds familiar to you, he's borrowing language. This may mean nothing to some of you and a lot to others of you. He's borrowing language from Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and he says this. Hope is a sure and certain anchor of the soul that orients your present, that assures you that no matter what storms rage, that all suffering will be healed, that all the inscrutable contradictions one day will vanish, that something so beautiful and harmonious will one day come to pass that it will suffice for all the broken hearts, reconcile all the old resentments, and atone for all the crimes of man's humanity against man that one day we shall embrace one another and weep. And it, will be more, and it will more than make up for everything that has happened. Hope 
is a sure and certain anchor of the soul that orients your present. I love that. That assures you that no matter what storms rage, that all sufferings will be healed. So let me ask two questions. What does this mean that we in this room who profess faith in Jesus, what does it mean that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is one of those moments when we ask this question, what it means that what I want to say to you is, wake up. This is important. There is nothing more important for you to hear this morning or any day of the week for the rest of your life than this. He says there's a living hope. If his claim is true, it's pretty darn important. He says there is a living hope that you've been born into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's important. What does it mean? I'd say two things. It means first that Jesus didn't just identify with you in his life and death, but what he's saying is that he also identified and united himself with you in his resurrection. That Jesus didn't, he didn't just identify with you, which is miraculous in his life, that Jesus took on flesh and lived among us so that the incarnation was Jesus identifying himself with us in our broken humanity. He didn't just do that. He didn't just do it in his death. He also did it in his resurrection. When Jesus rose, what does that mean? It means this. When Jesus rose from the dead, you rose with him. You rose from the dead with Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, that if you're united with Jesus in a death like his, then you are united with Jesus in a resurrection like his. So that you now, he says, are part of a new creation. That you right now, in this very present moment, this is why he calls them resident aliens, they're residents of the kingdom of God, they're citizens of heaven, and they're continuing to live in the world. So he's got to remind this this to him over and over again, that you now have risen with Christ, you have died with him, you have risen with him, and you are now part of the new creation. Living hope that brings inexpressible joy isn't rooted in something so flimsy as whether or not you're able to have a good day. It isn't rooted in something so flimsy as whether or not you think you're a decent mom. It isn't rooted in so, something so flimsy as whether or not um, you've got a decent income. It isn't rooted in something so flimsy as whether or not you're able to make it through graduate school. It is rooted, Peter says, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, from the dead. And he thinks this bears repeating over and over and over again because we don't really believe it when things start to look bad. And he says, when everything looks lost, I'm here to remind you that what your hope is rooted in tells you a story that lets you know that it's not just wishful thinking that things are going to turn out better. That's not just wishful thinking. The great reversal of the fall and the knitting together of heaven and earth, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, was inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus. He was the first fruits of that harvest, and you, my friends, are the crop. That's what he's telling them. But, we, but we're outcasts. We're nobody. We've all, we've, we've all of a sudden been demoted in our rank in society. And he says, no, my friends, you are citizens of heaven, 
You are part of the family of God. This is secondly what it means that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means that we are so bound to Christ, we are so bound to Christ that we share his inheritance. That inheritance, Peter says, is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. If you share an inheritance with Jesus, whenever you share an inheritance, it means you're part of the family, whether you're part by birth or whether you're adopted. We've been adopted into the family of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're united with Christ, the Son of God, means that, and this is what the New Testament tells us in other places, calls us co-heirs with Christ. That you are a co-heir with Jesus. That you share his inheritance, meaning, what does that mean? It means whatever happens to Jesus and comes to Jesus is now also yours. Peter's saying, Quit, like, quit your wishful thinking. Quit, you know, living a life of trying to manage something that can be hopeful for you. Quit placing your, you know, putting your joy on the pedestal of whether or not you're able to do this or that. You are now a co-heir with Christ, and you share his inheritance. And the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is reserved and guarded for you in heaven. Who's it guarded by? It's guarded by Jesus. If you could picture him right now, he is on his throne at the right hand of God, guarding your inheritance until the day of completion. Why is that good news? It's because your inheritance isn't based on you earning it. Inheritance never is. Inheritance is not based on what you've done, how good you've been, or even how bad you've been. It is completely and utterly a gift of the grace of God. It is guarded for you in heaven. This is living hope. It's what God has done for you, not what you have done for God. It is what God has done for you, is not what you have done for God. In these last three verses of this passage, he starts getting in, these are kind of weird verses, he starts getting in um, talking about prophets and what they prophesied about, and they were waiting for this day, and then he starts talking about angels. What is he saying? He's saying, this is so beautiful, and this is so mysterious, that all the prophets were talking about this, and Peter says these amazing words. When they were talking about it, what they were prophesying is they were prophesying about you. We could apply that to ourselves now. They were prophesying about us who are now in the church, who were once far outside the kingdom of God and have now been brought near, out of darkness, he'll say later, and into light. Um, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. He says now angels are peering down wanting to look at this because it's so unbelievable. Do you have hope? Where's your hope? Is it in that, Peter says? So what is the result of that? In the middle of this passage is where he gets into that, and he addresses kind of where they are. What is the result of a living hope of the resurrection? Let me quote um, from Henry Nouwen for a second. He says, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, even death can take away that love. Joy is the experience. It's an experience of knowing it's rooted in knowledge. It's rooted in something that's happened that you are unconditionally loved, loved without condition, not loved based upon merit, not loved based upon social standing, not loved based upon what you've done or not done, loved unconditionally. 
and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, even death can take that away. The living hope of the resurrection is an anchor of your soul. And it allows you to rejoice in the midst of trial. Why? As he begins to address this, rejoice in the midst of trial. Why? Because you know that the outcome, you know what the outcome is going to be. So that trial and suffering is not going to destroy you, he says, but it's going to refine you. This is why he compares it to the most precious thing that existed in the world at that time and maybe even still today. He compares it to gold. And he said that even gold will perish, but this will never perish. And the trials he's talking about, what is he talking about? I think we could talk about this, we could think about this on a wide span because we all experience trials and we experience suffering all the time. Um, But he's speaking into a particular context, and I think it's important for us to think about that context because he's not talking about the trial of just stubbing your toe, you know, on the bedside table on the way to the bathroom in the middle of the night. As much as you may feel like that's a trial or that God's out to get you because that didn't go well for you, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the trials that come from living in the midst of a world that hates God and now you're united with God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the trials that come from living in the midst of a world that hates God, and now you're part of God's family. (laughs) And he's saying, if there's no trials coming, why is that? There's going to be trials that come. He's particularly talking about those trials that come from being united with Christ. And so in essence, what Peter is saying is that suffering will follow salvation. And everyone we look at in the New Testament had that experience. That suffering will follow salvation because following Jesus grates against a society that does not want Jesus, does not want a Savior, does not want atonement, does not want to follow him. And being connected to him, Peter is saying, will grate against the world. And what that will cause for you is it will cause suffering to some degree. And it's interesting to read, I'm just going to say this, that it's interesting for me at least to think about reading 1 Peter and even preaching it now in our current context in the West compared to when he originally wrote it. Because we sometimes think that we're being persecuted. And then you read what happened to early Christians. And it's sort of why are we not maybe being despised and persecuted? You may feel like you are. I promise you're really not. Why are we not being despised and persecuted the way that they were? And maybe it's because we don't really listen to and follow the teachings of Jesus. Because if we did, we would look probably a lot different. And what Jesus assures us and what Peter is assuring us is that the world's actually going to hate you for that. These aren't fun things to hear, but Peter's grounding our minds. He's saying it's inevitable that Jesus says, they hated me, that they will also hate you. So what is going to be your response to that? What, and this is where we're going to go in the coming weeks. Because the response isn't to hate the world in, in response to them hating you. That's not the response. Although a lot of people in the church have done that. It's nothing like that, in fact. Instead, he's painting a picture of a community that is guided by the living hope of Jesus from the resurrection. Who is now empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus in the midst of the world. That who, people who know that their inheritance is so sure that they follow him, 
even though they know that it will mean suffering and trials, though they have not seen him, they love him. And they rejoice in the midst of it with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know, there's an old saying that says that somebody may be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? Someone's so heavenly minded they're no, of no earthly good. And, um, you know, what they're saying is that somebody's just, their head's in the clouds and they're just so kind of like religious that they don't care about what's going on around them. And I think that that saying is utter hogwash. It is, uh, it, I, I could, it, yeah, it's, it's not good, okay? Why? Because if, if you are heavenly minded and you aren't concerned about what is happening on the earth, if you're of no earthly good, then you're not heavenly minded at all. Why? Because Jesus was the most heavenly minded person that has ever existed, and he came to earth so that the Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly mindedness is the fuel for earthly good. It is the fuel for us caring about what happens here. I'm going to leave you with what I think is what Peter is doing. And I'm just going to read to you for a minute. But what I'm reading to you are the words of Jesus. Because I think Peter is just taking Jesus and he's taking his teaching. He's taking his life and death and resurrection. He's applying it to the early church so that they might have hope. So that they would learn what it means to love the world in the way that Jesus has loved the world so that they would live with the power of the resurrection through the Spirit and be witnesses. And Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, he sits down one day and he gathers a crowd and he opens his mouth and he starts to talk. It's most famous sermon and he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city Set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. What does that look like? Let me just give you a sampling, and I encourage you to go back and read Matthew 5 through 7 this afternoon. Read the rest of the sermon. But here's a sampling of what it looks like to practice your good works before the world so that you give glory to the Father in heaven. He says this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. A little later he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is what Peter is reminding us of this morning. That you don't have to be anxious about your life any longer. Why? Because you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and fading, guarded for you in heaven. So that even for a while, if you go through fiery trials, it only refines you into the day that is coming. They have nothing left to fear, Peter's saying. And through the Spirit, they now have the love of Jesus to show to the world. And I would say this morning that so do we. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, there's a lot to take in in that one long run-in sentence that Peter gives us. Um, We may kind of taste of some of the glory of it, but we might ask, is this just naive optimism? Is it really true? And Father, I pray that by your spirit this morning that you might open our eyes so that you might convince us that yes, indeed, it is absolutely true. It's the only true thing. That you might change us as a result. That you might set us free from our worry and our anxiety and our addiction and our fear so that we might go on to serve you, so that we might be witnesses of the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Father, would you do this for your own name's sake and for your own glory? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.